What chance in Margot? Marlowe. Marlowe? Which chance in Marlowe? Where's everybody? I hope the cold didn't keep her. Sue may be gone. Is she gone on her trip No, she is. She's has something to do today, but she's, oh. she'll be back next week. Oh, I think okay. her trip doesn't start till the 19th. Oh, okay. And mm. Debbie emailed that she wouldn't be able to come today. She Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life and the gift of yourself. There's a picture of the new priest out in the foyer. It was good to see him. Um, let the promise that um, he brings in coming here be fulfilled. Um, let him find a welcome parish and um, strengthen him for the work he's about to take on with the, uh, with the new church. Help us to give ourselves to him, um, to give ourselves to you always, um, to do your will, particularly when it's hard for us and not easy. Um, we ask a blessing on Father Flynn and the work that he's picked up at um, Elizabeth Seton. Um, watch over him. Um, continue to strengthen him, help him to grow in the love that you offer. Um, and if this is a preparation for more down the line, um, help him, help him get ready for whatever lies ahead of him. Um, I ask a blessing on us and the work that we're doing together. Um, Help us to take seriously what these poets are teaching us. The poets are prophets in a way, and um, sadly, it's too easy for us to just think of poets as belonging to the past. The, the, I mean the prophets, the prophetic tradition ended with Christ, but each one of us is asked to be a priest, prophet, and king, and some people are better than that than others. The poets are. Um, help us to take the wisdom that they offer and make it living in our own lives, particularly where it's hard. Give us the courage to stand with you, um, to not let our concern for others keep us from bringing the truth, particularly where it's going to be uncomfortable. I ask a blessing on Chance and Margot. Margot. Marlo. Marlo. Um, all couples fight. Um, um, it's not a bad thing. What um, purposeless fighting is, um, all of us struggle. There are differences. Um, in all the struggles that we have, um, let the difficulties we have bring us to better ground. If that doesn't happen, then the struggles that we have um, are futile. Um, let all of the struggles that we have um, bear fruit to help make us better, all of us. And I ask us um, a special blessing on all of us in our families. So often, um, priests get the focus for sainthood and people 
mothers and fathers, husbands and wives don't. I believe that um, there's a deep cross that each of us carries in our own families and so often what we do with each other actually moves us toward salvation or away. So let the work that we do in our own families um, um, make us better. Um, strengthen a spirit of holiness in each of us. We're called to holiness to bring it, particularly when it makes for difficulties because we're not used to it. It's so easy to conform to a respectable world. Um, help us to be respectful of our world, um, but to offer ourselves to the holiness that you call us to. Help each of us to do that, please. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> okay. I should probably say a word about this. I think I have it in our time together already. I'm so aware of um, the importance of saints in our lives. Father Flynn was really good in daily mass because he would often um, speak to whoever the saint was for that particular day. It was his way of it, I think indirectly, he never said this explicitly, but I think it was his way of encouraging us to take saints more seriously and to take our call to sainthood more seriously. When you look at the saints, most of them come from orders. I don't think that's an accident. I, you know, People in orders are asked to give their lives completely. Priests are asked not to marry, so they don't compromise their <laughs> efforts for Christ. And Father constantly encouraged us to take seriously saving other souls. <clears throat> but he always did it in a sense that it was somebody other. You know, we're just a small community in Grapevine. There's a larger community that's our responsibility. And beyond that, we're responsible for a community too. So. And whenever I heard him do that, I was always I was always aware that I don't think we get enough credit in our own families. But very often something's going on that um, that challenges us to difficulties, you know, um, particularly in our age. Marriage is so under attack. Family's under attack. And I think marriages are it's a it's a time of such struggle. Um, and I'm sorry for that because I really think a kind of saintliness is occurring or should occur. It's so easy to slip into a conventional world, the respectable world that, you know, we've been, Melville uncovers it, Faulkner uncovers it. None of them are saying, damn the respectable world or, you know, it's a bad thing. But they are making us aware that there are dangers for us <coughs> in slipping too easily into that respectable world. Um, particularly when our call from Christ is to a cross and a holiness. So I hope you won't mind if I include prayers for us in our families and as a way of encouraging all of us to take that more seriously. I hope that's okay. Okay, let's start. No lyric today. Um, very quickly, we went, we read Prufrock um, and saw in Prufrock what I believe is Eliot's um, rendering of a, of a modern damned soul. 
Um, the, one of the beautiful ironies of the poem, as you recall, is that Prufrock is a lyric. Eliot consciously sets him in a lyric tradition. It's called the Love Song of Geoffrey Prufrock. Even that title recognizes, assumes the importance of love in the whole lyric tradition. Because the lyric poems, traditionally from the beginning, <coughs> have love as their motive. The poets typically express their love for another. That's the nature of the lyric. It's an expression of the, the feelings and thoughts of a poet, his inner life. If we look at each other, we never see our feelings. It's a world invisible to us. It's the imminent inner life, the life we have inside. The lyric poem is typically entered into that. It reveals us, it reveals that inner life to us. We get in touch with it through the lyric. Narrative takes us out into a world. It's about a person, Pip or Huckleberry Finn or you know, Achilles or Aeneas or the lyric is inward. So traditionally the lyric's been about love. And then suddenly this guy writes this poem called The Love Song of Jaffa Rufar about this guy who's going on a assassination, gonna meet a woman. Um, and with some sense probably that he's aware that there will be a sexual character to it. And everything in the poem suggests that he's doing all he can to excuse it, to pass it off, to make nothing of it. And as if we read it and reread it um, and set him against the world, the women come and go talking to Michelangelo, it's a world given to um, aesthetic beauty, art, culture, cultivated values. El, or Prufrock belongs to that world, but as we read, we become aware he's paralyzed. He, he lives so entirely to himself. You remember the ending, if human voices wake us and we drown. You know, the contact with the human world, any real contact, undoes him. So Prufrock is not a murderer. He's not an adulterer as far as we know. He has not committed a mortal sin as we know it. So in lots of ways, he's more subtly like us. And yet Eliot shows he's damned. He's soaked so in his own world that he has no contact with people. <coughs> so in some sense, I've suggested that poem in Eliot's Wasteland mark the threshold of modernity. It shows that we've entered a post-Christian world. Christian values are no longer serious. People don't define themselves in turn of those values, and we've entered a new world. And now it's <coughs> speaking to it. Proof of this one, the, the wasteland. And that phrase, you know, for Eliot is an image of the modern world. It, it is sterile, dry, it has turned away from God. There's very little hope. We're going to have to do the wasteland. Um, <coughs> so, <coughs> was it Sue? <coughs> Maybe in 10 years we'll get through with all of it. Like some, it was something like that. Anyway, so we've looked at, we've, we've, we've read a poem about our modern condition. And one of the reasons, among others, for, for choosing that poem, the reason I've just given, is because it's clear when you read Eliot that one of, probably the most important influence, literary influence in Eliot's life was Dante. So there's an immediate bridge between Dante and the, you know, in the beginning of the 14th century and Eliot in the 20th. That's 600 years. And um, that bridge is closed, that gap is closed with Eliot. Um, so Dante is still alive. And those of you who did the four quartets remember in, um, in one of them, he describes himself as moving through the streets after a bombardment 
during the war when the planes came over and bombed, or he was a night warden, whatever they were called, and a ghost meets him, and there are three of them walking together. There are subtle allusions to Dante, and, and Ash Wednesday, the, the poem that marks his conversion from when he re-entered the church, Elliot did. Ash Wednesday, the structure and the descriptions in Ash Wednesday are taken from Dante. So Dante was everywhere present. So in the same way that Dante used Virgil to bring the pagan past into the 14th century, Eliot's using Dante to bring the 14th century into modernity at a time when modernity wants to have nothing to do with that past. Okay, that's how, and we, I've mentioned it. If you read his poems, there's nothing explicitly Christian. So the intellectuals, when they read him, immediately took to him until he converted. <laughs> and, then, and then he took on a different, a different kind of character. So, so um, even though we're going back to Dante, we're seeing in Eliot um, a poet who's keeping that past alive. The Trinity, we, at last couple of weeks we've looked at the various ways in which the Trinity is um, integrated into the structure of the Commedia. <clears throat> Remember the three canticles, Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradiso. Each of the canticles is divided into three. So hell itself has three sections, the, the leopard, the lion, the she-wolf, the incontinent, the violent, the fraudulent. Um, the Terzarima, the rhyme screen, scheme, remember I've described, it's, it's a three-line stanza with an A, B, A, B, C, B, D, E, D, E, F, you know. So the beauty of that Terzarima is that it, in some ways it's an, it's an exact rendering of the nature of the Trinity because it is the still, it is a fixed rhyme scheme keeps the same form. I'd forgotten and Fred just reminded me. It may even have the same number of syllables. Um, and and it, it's still and forward moving, which is a, a wonderful description of the Trinity. God is complete in himself. He doesn't need anything outside. There's no desire in God. He's still and complete in himself and yet in motion. Remember the, the image that we've used here is the still point. It's the center of a circle the circle's moving about it. It imparts motion to the circle, but it itself doesn't move. And I read that passage from Boethius, remember, where Boethius said, it's, it, um, it, when he's trying to describe God at work in the world, he likens God to the difference between understanding, no, between reasoning and understanding. Because in reasoning, we're moving towards a conclusion in understanding, we have grasped it, right? We all know that we go, ah, I see. It's rest, we come to rest. So that action of God is, is internally present in all of us, constantly reasoning, moving towards something, and when we get there, we come to rest. We go, ah, I see. That's sort of preliminary, a foretaste <laughs> of the beatific vision. It's the one thing we all want, when we get there, all desires will be quieted, will be at rest, to say, ah. Um, <clears throat> remember I said last time that St. Augustine, I think, came up with 26 different kinds of, 
um, patterns of the Trinity. I, I don't remember them. The, the one that Saint, I, um, the one that I think he and Saint Thomas had in common, and it certainly is the one that Saint Thomas used, um, is in the fact that um, we see it in the human person because each human has being, he is, each human knows, and he loves. That's an exact description of God himself. Absolutely exact. God names himself in the Old Testament. He says, I am that am. Right? I am. That's who he is. He is being itself. He is. There was nobody before him. Nobody preceded him. He's uncreated. If there was somebody before him, that would have to be greater than God. And we understand God to be that than which nothing is greater. That's one definition of God. So he is. He's being. He knows and he loves. In knowing himself, his concept of himself, the, the image of himself, the, the concept, the idea, is the Son. That's why he's unbegotten. He shares the same nature with God. So when God knows himself, that self-knowledge is the Son. The love between them cannot be a force because God is a person. That relationship between them has to be a person. So the, con the Son comes into existence as an act of knowledge. The Spirit comes into existence as an act of will. That's why the Spirit is called love. So the human person is, he knows, he loves. That's an, um, an exact definition of us and it shows it gives a deeper to meaning what we understand when we say we were created in the image of God. That Trinity is present everywhere in our life, in our very nature. Who sees that? You know, we don't think enough about it, but there it is. Um, and there's one other way, and this is too subtle, and I'm not going to go into it here except just to mention it. Thomas says, I think following um, Augustine in this too, Thomas says that everything in nature is good, is good. <coughs> a pear, an, a tree, a wolf, a rabbit, a sea anemone, a, everything. Everything is good insofar as it has a mode, <coughs> a form, and an order. Those three qualities characterize everything in creation, everything the extent that it's good. Each thing is its own mode. Thomas says mode, order, and <coughs> mode, form, and order are present insofar as a man is white, insofar as he's virtuous, insofar as he's learned. So mode is the material disposition and its, its power of efficacy. <coughs> I'm white. Somebody else here could have been um, James who came to our class once, a young kid from the um, Wreck is black. Um, each one of us has an operation. We're all trying to become better, to become virtuous. And our order is our end, the goodness that we achieve. So everything in nature has a Trinitarian quality. So the Trinity is everywhere around us. So when Dante structures his poem the way he does, um, it's not an accident. It's not a structural... Um, Thing. It's not a structural quality. 
It's inherent in everything. And that's one of the reasons why we get these parodies of them too. At the end of the Inferno, we're going to see it. Satan has three heads. Um, um, Cerberus, the dog, has three heads. Um, so the Trinity informs the whole thing. And remember that at one point, it, I mean, it goes to this, our notion of the Terzarima form. When Dante gets to the back of the universe in the Paradiso, he'll look back, um, and when he, um, he'll see the, the Earth not moving, because all the planets move around it, to the, to the Prima Mobile, which is moving fast. And the Prima Mobile is set in motion by God. And it's that Prima Mobile that sets all the planets in motion until we get to the Earth, which is still. It's where death occurs. The Copernican revolution is going to change all this. That's another story, but this is in the Ptolemaic system. When he turns around and looks at Beatrice, and she's looking at God, he sees the same universe, but inverted in its dynamics. Because now the outermost motion, or out the outermost sphere is not moving. It's going the slowest. When he looks at the center, there's a still point moving so fast, it's standing still. That's God. And it's a way of Dante saying, God is present everywhere in our lives. One of the reasons I read those passages from Eliot, remember, the, that I read last week, um, the stairs, the vase, the circle, what am I missing? The dance. Remember, every, every one of those things, art, artworks, artifacts, the violin, the music, the dance, natural things, humans moving in a dance, Everything in creation, everything implies a still point. It's there in every work of art that there's this intuition that itself can't be seen. Otherwise, where does the unity in a work of art come from? And you know that lots of modern paintings are attempting to deny that. I mean, they'll just splatter paint and say, that's a painting. It's a way of saying there is no still point, it's just chaos. There is no order. <clears throat> a dance where two human beings are moving with each other implies a still point. If they lose their balance, they collapse. So everything in throwing a ball against a wall, why, does the ball, why doesn't the ball, when it hits the backboard, come back and make a right turn or, you know, collect? There's an order at work everywhere in the universe. Physicists struggle to get to it. And we know that whatever theories physicists come up with now, <coughs> will be replaced by something better, more penetrating, 100 years from now or 50 years from now. The nature of physics is always trying to penetrate the mysteries of the universe more and more. Einstein said as much. So um, these are not artificial concepts for Dante. They define the way he experienced the world. And, and the Commedia is, in some sense, rendering these in a way so that we become aware of them. We were finishing hell and I suggested last week that one of the ways that we can look at hell is as a Walpurgis night. A witch's, a witch's um, Sabbath. Um, that hell is an inversion of the Eucharist. I mean that seriously, that's not a rhetorical... Tomas! Um, it's not a rhetorical statement. Um, what we find in hell is a nightmare. Um, we're going to see it in a minute because I'm going to turn to some passages. 
it's, it's interesting that it, as we move towards the center of hell, the terms in which scenes are presented to us are in terms of eating. Um, and even the treatment of the body or the souls in hell um, suggest body, remember they don't, the souls don't have bodies, but the shades as we see them are um, torn apart, lose their nature, um, are assimilated into the muck or the excrement and come out of it again. Um, and, and, and at the very end, people are treated in terms of eating and even eating themselves. And so the, I'm, I'm going to come to this in a minute. Why does Dante do that? Why all these feasting images? One of the last images we have is of um, Alberigo, who's a friar. Again, priests, priests are unmasked everywhere. Bishops and popes are fill up hell. Um, Amerigo was a friar, um, and his betrayal took place. His 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 betrayal. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Set it to go off at eleven ten, and I will be grateful for you. <laughs> You'll know when it's eleven ten. Well, because I always, I always say I'm going to get out on time, and I'm just so bad. Um, anyway, we'll come to that. Why, why does Dante do that? Okay, so that's just a very, very quick review. Okay, the question that I want to look at, that asked today is, um, and we'll look at, we'll look at the some of the passages we looked at last week, and then move forward to the end. Um, does Dante grow? Does Dante grow? This, this is the first third of a journey. Remember, this is an epic quest. And it's easy, it's easy to forget that because as we're going through hell, we become so preoccupied with the changes that take place in the levels. We're going, we're going from depth to depth, to, from sin to sin to sin to sin, that we can lose track of Dante when he's the means of looking at those things. Is he changing? There are some critics who say that what Dante does at the end when he kicks Baca, for example, or when he pulls, we're going to look at it, he pulls the hair out of Baca and threatens him, and he makes a promise to one of the souls um, and then breaks his promise, critics will go, he's no, that is, it's their way of saying, Dante's a sinner. He comes from a world of sin. He hasn't completely changed yet. You know, that he's got to go purgatory. And is that true? I mean, is Dante just showing us that he's still a sinner? Or is Dante the poet? Showing us something else. Major question, okay? And the last question that I want to deal with, we'll, we'll get to, is what do we do with Dante's treatment of Satan? Because if you set it next to the Ugolino episode, it seems almost anti-comic. It's comic. The Ugolino episode is brutal. It's a man eating, feasting on, on, a, on a bishop. Okay, let's look. Can you turn to... Uh, I want to go back just very quickly to the some of the earlier um, episodes. On page 152, 155, it's, it's 28, about line 30. Dante has come to the level of the sowers of discord, and he sees Mohammed, page 152, 
See how Muhammad is deformed and torn in front of me and weeping. Ali walks, his face cleft from his chin up to the crown. Um, Muhammad is there because Muhammad believed that the um, that Christ was not the savior, that he was another prophet, and he um, denied the existence of the Trinity. And, and I hope you're seeing how important the Trinity, but by the way, if, if, if our faith is right, it, it means that by our very nature, we were meant to love and be loved. We're supposed to be in a relationship. Um, the, the Trinity is a relationship of persons. There's so much about the modern world that, that get, leaves us with the image that we're, by nature, we're isolated. We're like atoms in space. We're flying off. And the Protestant world has reinforced that because they make a person's private conscience the arbiter of all things. So there's so many forces in the modern world that encourage us to see ourselves as isolated. The, the, the best description is, don't touch me. You know, leave me alone. Whereas the very nature of our our, our very nature as humans, according to our faith, is that we are social, communal, by nature. <laughs> Mohammed is here because um, what he set forth and what he really sort of unleashed in the world is this um, heretical notion um, that God is single, Allah. He, he thought that the notion of the Trinity was false and that Christ was not God. So his his religion struck at the heart of Christianity. And you know if you've read the, um, the Quran that there are passages that show that the only answer finally to the infidel is destruction. There is a commitment to, to get rid of the Christians because they're infidels. So the two religions, if you look at their belief system, stand diametrically opposite of each other. Going over to the end, because it, uh, it's just such a good contrapasso about line, or 155, 166. Dante comes across Mosca, another um, sower of discord. And then at the end, on page 156, he comes to this creature um, who has a, who in some sense is the most perfect representation of the idea of the contrapasso and the whole of the inferno. 156. It spoke. <clears throat> now see the monstrous punishment you there still breathing, looking at the dead. See <clears throat> if you find suffering to equal mine. And, and remember, almost every one of the people in hell thinks his suffering is greater than anybody else's. That's, that's been constant all along. They're so in their own world. They, they have no sense of others at all. That is no sense of truth. We've, we've seen this. That you may know, that you may report on me up there, know that I am Bertram de Bourne, the one who evilly encouraged the young king Father and son I sent against each other. Achitophel, with his wicked instigations, did not do more than um, Absalom with David. Um, he encouraged young Prince Henry to rebel against his father. Now, think about this allegorically because, in a sense, it's setting the son against the father, which in metaphysical terms would have meant, would, would have meant setting Christ against his father. So the implications of setting a son against his father indirectly is a sin against the Trinity, against Christ and the Father. Because to cut the bonds of those so joined, I bear my head cut off from its life source, 
which is back there because the Father is the source of life for the Son. It is for the Father in heaven, right? The Son is begotten, <clears throat> not made. I bear my head cut off from its life source, which is back there, alas, within its trunk. In me you see the perfect contrapasso. So Bertrand de Born is holding his head like this, and it's speaking. And so in a sense, it's a perfect illustration of the contrapasso because the head is completely severed from the body, and yet it's talking. Uh, it's a way of saying, we use the expression, he's lost his head or lost his mind, or I think it's a wonderful image. Um, I want to go to the end, look at 166, 167. Um, this is Canto 30, Doc, about one line 114 or so. Master Adam was a counterfeiter, so uh, um, did something that, that would have had a destructive influence on everything in a community <coughs> because the money was falsified, so it would have affected everybody. Sinon, remember, is the Greek, or the Greek who was used to trick um, the Trojans into allowing the Greeks to bring the horse into their city. And you know when the horse gets in, what happens. So both of them are here as falsifiers of, of, of doing something that affected a large number of people. Um, and Master Adam is bloated. Remember that, from drop, meaning it looks like he's had too much water, he's just bloated. Uh, 167. And then the, the, the two men, Sinan and Adam, are quarreling with each other, and Dante's watching this and cannot take his eyes off the scene. Now, remember the number of times he's been overcome by pity. Um, there's been, Virgil's had to turn him around, he's had to pick him up, and here's another instance um, where Virgil has to do something with Dante. And then the money man. So there you go, your evil mouth pours out its filth as usual. For if I thirst, the humors swell me up. You burn more, and your head is fit to split. And it wouldn't take much coaxing to convince you to lap the mirror of Narcissus dry. I was listening, all absorbed in the debate, when the master said to me, keep right on looking a little more, and I shall lose my patience. That's as close to a real anger that Virgil directs at Dante, I think, in the whole of the the whole of his time with him. I heard the note of anger in his voice and turned to him. I was so full of shame that it still haunts my memory today. Like one asleep who dreams himself in trouble and his dream, in his dream he wishes he were dreaming, longing for that which is as if it were not, just so I found myself unable to speak, longing to beg for pardon and already begging for pardon, not knowing that I did. Why does Dante describe it that way, by the way? I think it's because his shame is so complete, so overwhelmed, so takes him over, that he's not fully aware of what he does. And Virgil immediately sees that. Less shame than yours would wash away a fault greater than yours has been, my master said. And so forget about it, do not be... When somebody's contrite, genuinely contrite, what is self there's nothing else to say except good, go on your way, you know. It's when people are not contrite and they argue or ex make excuses, I think that most of us get mad or, you know, say, knock it off. Um, okay, I want to go to the um, very end. 
Um, and then I want to look at pity. Take a look um, on page 177. <coughs> Remember, Dante's in the lowest part of hell now, and all the souls are buried in ice. And remember, in the earlier levels of this circle of hell, um, the, the soul's heads are bent forward so they can get relief from the tears in their eyes. As Dante progresses through this stage of hell, the, the very last one, the soul's heads are turned back. So the tears form crust that, that increase the punishment, that make the punishment worse. Okay. Here on page 177, this is 32, Canto 32, he meets Baca, happens to kick him accidentally, and wants to know where he is. And Baca's not going to tell him, and Dante grabs his hair, middle of 177, you'd better tell me you are, or else I'll, I'll not leave one hair on your head. And he said to me, go on, strip me bald, and pound and snap my head a thousand times, you'll never hear my name or see my, see my face. There's that defiance that's so you know, present everywhere in, in hell. I had my fingers twisted in his hair and already I pulled out more than one fistful while he yelped like a cur with eyes shut tight. When someone else yelled, what's the matter, Baca? It's bad enough to hear your shivering teeth, now you bark. So um, he learns um, Baca's name and while he's tearing his hair out. Now hold on to that for a second. Um, and 33, um, or sorry, 184, he comes across um, Abarigo, and at the eight, 184 he says, if this is what you want, tell me your name, and if I do not help you, may I be forced to drop beneath his eyes. So Dante's constantly wanting to know the identity of people. Here's another soul he, whose name he doesn't know. And he makes a vow that if the, if the soul tells him, um, he will relieve some of the punishment by taking the ice crust off the ice, okay? Um, and if I do not tell you, may I be forced to drop beneath this ice? He makes a vow. He answered that I am Abrigo. I am he who offered fruit from the evil or orchard here dates are served me for the figs I gave. He invited kinsmen over for a, for a meal and killed them. And this is what happened then. And you may, um, that you may more, more willingly scrape off my cluster of glass tears, that he's expecting Dante to be more willing to relieve his punishments. Um, let me tell you, whenever a soul betrays the way I did, a demon takes possession of the body controlling its maneuvers from then on, for all the years it has to live up there. While the soul falls straight into this cistern here, and the shade in winter quarters just behind me well, may well have left his body up on earth. So what we learn from Albrigo is that there's a friar up on earth inhabited by a demon. So some people, we, we know that some people who are very trusting of priests are actually being deceived because the priests are inhabited by demons. Um, um, then he says, now do what you promised, but now at last give me the hand you promised, open my eyes. I did not open them. To be mean to him was a generous reward. 
Okay, one more, and then I want to stop one of these. Um, <clears throat> this is the scene in which Dante um, talks with Ugolino. Um, Right. Sorry, um, on page 182, um, Ugolino and Ruggiero, the bishop, were um, involved in politics, and Ruggiero betrayed Ugolino and had him sent to the tower with his children. These are actually, historically, this happened. Um, they're not his children, they're his nephews, but he treats them as if they're um, his own kids. Um, they were fed for a little while and then one day they heard hammering at the door and they knew that they were locked in. They would be sealed in. From that point on they wouldn't have any food so they would starve. Um, page 181, the middle of the page. When I woke, this is 33, when I woke before the light of dawn, I heard my children sobbing in their sleep. You see, they too were there asking for bread. Go down, then they awoke. It was around the time they usually brought food, but now each one of us was full of dread from dreaming. Then from below, I heard them driving nails into the tower. Um, I did not weep. I turned to stone inside. One of the children says, what is it, Father? Why do you look like that? The children are generally concerned at his pain. Of 182. A meager ray of sunlight found its way to the misery of our cell, and I could see myself reflected four times in their faces. I bit my hands in anguish. Notice all the food imagery again, okay? I bit my hands in anguish, and as my children, who, who thought that hunger made me bite my hands, were quick to draw closer to me, saying, Oh, Father, you would make us suffer less if you would feed on us. You were the one who gave us this sad flesh. Take it. They're offering themselves as food to save him. Okay. Now, day by day, the children begin to die. You all know this. So, um, and the last one, just as you see me here, I saw the other three fall one by one as the fifth day and the sixth passed, and I, by then gone blind, groped over their dead bodies. Though they were dead two days, I called their names. Then hunger proved more powerful than grief. Does everybody understand what's going on right now? Then hunger prove more powerful than grief? Ate him, right? You all? Okay. Some people think that means he just died. Clearly it doesn't. It means he ate them. So this is the episode before Satan. You may disagree, but let me, uh, if you do, tell me why. But I, I think this is the most powerful um, one of the most powerful in all of the committee, and in the sense that it comes towards the end, it's the most powerful. It's human, it's real, it's historically grounded. It's a father um, whose children want to give themselves to him to keep him alive, and then he in turn eating his children. <clears throat> so feasting's right at the center. It's touching, it's sad. When we get to Satan, Dante describes Satan, it's almost ridiculous. He's in ice, he's impotent, this is the devil. He's impotent. Impotent. That has, there's no power to him at all. And he's eating three figures. He's got three heads. He's eating Brutus, Cassius, and Judas, all, all who betrayed their lords. So hold on to that. Now I just want to um, quickly go through this because I want to pull all these things together. On page 70, you don't have to go there, 
870, Dante looked at Pierre de Vanya in the wood of the suicides, remember, and was overcome by pity. Turn to page 85. I'm going to do this really quickly. I want to just go through this. 85. Um, this is um, Jacopo at the um, level of the sodomites, I think, on page 86. Remember, these are all very respectable men. They have all the appearances of decency. Um, page 86, and then I spoke repulsion, no, but grief for your condition spread throughout my heart and years will pass before it fades away. Grief. In the Sowers of Discord, page 157, go back to that, where we just were a minute ago. The top of 157, as Dante's looking at that um, malbolge, that circle, and sees all the shades mutilated, the, the human form so disfigured. The crowds, the countless different mutilations had stunned my eyes and left them so confused they wanted to keep looking and to weep. He sees it, he's so overcome that he wants to cry. We just looked at that scene in which Virgil gets really angry, angry when he's looking at Adam and Sinon. Remember, he can't take his eyes off of them. And then, um, we see the Ugolino Ruggiero scene um, that is so terrible, and then we go on to Satan. Um, now, a couple of questions here, and let me try to take these in order um, first. Lots of critics <coughs> see Dante as still a sinner, as if he hasn't learned anything. When he pulls the hair out of Baca, and when he promises Alvarigo that he will remove the crust, the ice crust forming on his eyes, and doesn't. goes back on a vow. The critics will say that's Dante's way of showing that Dante himself is in sin, still. And by the way, you can still be in sin. I mean, you know, he's a journeyer. I mean, it may be well that, may well be that he's still there. We're, we haven't gotten to purgatory yet. That's about where we're going to go. So it seems reasonable enough on the surface. Are they right? Go ahead. Yes. It, yes? Make a defense. Give a reason. Well, we all are in sin, aren't we? Are you asking me? I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get out of this. Come on. Make a defense of it. We're all sinners. Dante still yeah. is, yeah. Yes. We're all sinners. So you'd agree with him? So Dante's not changed or learned? Well, I think he's learning. Mm-hmm. He said, remember that line too? Go back to it for a second. Um, where was it? Once. When he says to him, to Avarigio, on page 185, but now at last give me the hand you promised. Open my By the way, remember when Dante was with uh, in the, um, the river of sticks? What was his name? Out. Where he passes out? No, no, no. When remember the sinners in this the level of the sullen and the guy comes to the surface and Dante pushes him down and there's that exchange between Virgil and Dante oh. where Virgil says, Blessed is she because Dante didn't let pity get in the way and pushed him down. So Dante says here, 
to Abrejo when he says, open my eyes, Dante says, I did not open them. To be mean to him was a generous reward. So, um, Mary Jane, we're all sinners. Is this just an expression of spite on his part? <coughs> to be mean to him was a generous reward? Or is there some other way to look at this? Where are you all? I have an opinion. Go. <laughs> I was just getting ready. I'll chance first. <laughs> I know. I, I, you're so generous. I, I think it's kind of a form of repentance. You know, you look at it, in, in the early going, he was, he was very empathetic to the sinners most of the time. Yeah. Then every once in a while he had a show a sign of, of something more than that. And I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you're, you know, you, 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 you sin, sometimes you make up excuses for it. Well, he made me do that. Or whatever yeah, it right, is. right. Adam and Eve. She gave me the apple. Right, know? right. But eventually, if you're gonna if you're gonna get better, you have to get to that point where you say, okay, that's just an excuse. I've got to be better than this. Yeah. And I I think he was still a sinner at this point, mm -hmm. but I think he was beginning to realize that he needed to be better. And what we what we see in the sense of him not brushing the ice off of the. Mm -hmm. um, Center that was Abrigo, yeah. Face up. Oh. It was it was a, um, you know, a, a, a clear repulsion of sin at that point. And I think you know, and it, I, I guess it, I, I got the feeling that you know, because when he gets to uh, purgatory, the angel still puts the seven P's on his forehead, right. which is right. Good translated yeah. to sin. I forget, right. I forget what. Percatum. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think he's still a sinner, but I think at this point he's beginning the repentance, the, the repentance process, mm -hmm. which is, I think, in turn, what allows him to go on into purgatory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Um, anybody else? One of the parishioners in Monday night said, I'm not going to give all this away, but she said, we're asked to hate the sin and love the sinner. Right? What's wrong with that here? This is really interesting to me because what Dante's doing is getting it out, getting us out of conventional notions, like that one. What's wrong with that here? By the way, that's that's central to the church, so I'm not denying that. But what's wrong with it here? He does it under deception. Sorry. He does it under deception. Who does what? Dante does. He Do says to. The man mm -hmm. that I'm going to, you know, give me your name and I'll wipe the right. ice off of you. Right. Knowing, well, I would imagine, do you think he knew he wouldn't? Can we assume that he knew he wouldn't wipe the. I think so. Yeah, so that's. Yeah. I don't understand how you can reconcile that. Remember. We're out of a world of respect. We're not in the world. We're at final ends. Right? The two final ends here are hell and heaven. Purgatory is a, is a movement from sin towards heaven. But in all instances, people are defined in terms of their final end. The people in purgatory, nobody's going to lose purgatory. They're not going to be kicked out. If they're there at all, it means they're on their way to heaven. So everything we're looking at is in terms of final ends. 
Are we supposed to love a person who's damned? That is, if we're one with God, is it, by the way, so, hate the sin, love the sinner. But that's in the world where there's a possibility that our love can make a difference for somebody. Yeah? We're in final ends. How can you love a person whose whole life is committed to evil, finally, eternally? We do that in the world because we hope, and we should, we're supposed to, so no matter, in the world, I mean, I want to put this as dramatic, no matter what a person does to it, remember those of you who did the Winter's Tale, Leontes' actions led to the, the death of his son, his actions led to and the death of Antigonus, Paulina's husband, she never held out against him, she was the one that said, don't marry, and kept him faithful for that 16 years, she lost her husband, I mean, how many women could do that? Um, somebody kills your husband, you want to string him up. No matter how bad people treat us, we're still asked to love, to go to a cross with Christ. That's what he did. He made it easy for himself. He did not. Call us to a Christ. We're supposed to have life the way we want to have it? No. He's called us to a cross. Because <laughs> we have, we're called to have, love means to love somebody when we have no reason for loving them. Hope means to have hope when there's no reason. Because remember, these are supernatural virtues. They don't belong to the natural. The natural ones are temperance, prudence, justice. Temperance, endurance, justice, prudence. Supernatural virtues are faith, hope, and charity. They're, they're of a divine order. Love doesn't mean anything until we love somebody when we don't have a reason to. Hope doesn't mean anything until we have no reason to hope. We have so secularized those terms. I hope I get a bike for Christmas. <coughs> no, no. It's not what hope is. Hope is a supernatural gift. It, it links us to Christ and so often to a cross. Faith is having faith in something when we have no reason to have faith in it. Dante's in final ends here. So I, I, it doesn't apply to say love the sinner, hate the... You can't love this person. He's committed evil. And with respect to these, you know, pulling out Baca's hair and making this vow to Albrecht, uh, to be mean to him was a generous reward. What Dante's showing us, remember the difference, we've gone through this, and God, it's just amazing how this comes up again with these artists. Pity is the feeling of identity that we have with somebody else who's suffering. In pity, in pity, we identify with somebody else who's suffering. It looks like love. It's not. And we know how paralyzing pity can be. Remember, Aristotle said the two emotions that we have to purge in tragedy are pity and fear, because those are the ones that can so arrest us. <coughs> pity without justice, it, this is Thomas, St. Thomas, it's disaster. It's enabling. We all know this. Enabling is a huge part of our culture right now. It looks like love, um, I think mothers particularly, because the, it's more natural, I think, for mothers to feel sympathy for a child. Pity looks like love. It can do a lot of harm if, you do, if it does away with justice. We're going to see this in the purgatory shortly. Love is different from pity because it means you, you love the good of another, even at the cost of yourself. That's Christ. He died. 
He's asking us to learn to put ourselves away to love the good of another. The, if we're looking for the good of another, we cannot enable. I hope that's clear. Enabling's not helping somebody. We, we, we have friends. Oh, I don't want to go into it. <coughs> but anyway, we all, we all know that. We, I think we know it from our own lives, from things we've done, and we know it, I think, in friends. So when Dante pulls out Baca's hair and he says to Alberigo, um, tell me your name and I'll relieve you, and, says, and then says to be mean to him was a generous word. What he's saying is this, to have pity for a soul in hell is to go against God's law. It, it's, it's making our emotions greater than him. Pity means we identify with the suffering of another. It means there's too much of ourself in it. We don't have the courage. We feel sorry for ourselves. We identify with the suffering. Love means we love the good of another, even at the expense of ourselves. We may have to die for it. That's at the root of our Catholic faith. That's absolutely central to our faith. <coughs> and Dante's making it clear here. <coughs> now, let me stop with this. So, has Dante learned? I, I think so. He's learning not to be quite so susceptible to pity because it's been a problem all along. We've seen that. He's learning to order his loves. Remember we've said the great task for all of us, according to our faith, we don't believe, we do not believe in the depravity of man. That's absolutely Protestant. We believe that man's inherently good. We also believe that we cannot get to heaven on our own because heaven's a supernatural condition. We can't get there without God's help. The great task for all of us is to learn to love the right way, to order our loves. That means being just, means holding to the law, even if it, even it means giving up, looking as if we're compassionate. I mean, the modern world is torn in that. I'm trusting everybody knows where I'm going in this. The, the political parties are defined in terms of that. One is treated, one is looked at as if it's not compassionate, and the other is looked at as if it's all compassion. Um, so the great task is learning to order all those. And I'd say, even though it's understated because our focus through the inferno has been on all these sinners, if we look at Dante and just take his actions, you know, through the whole of it, all that he's learning, and what Dante's doing to them, I, I would come away saying, I think he is learning. He's still a sinner. He's still a sinner. But the things he says and the things he's done shows he's more with God. To put it in, even more in a more orthodox way, if I can, to add punishments to these sinners is to be in accord with God. Because they have cast God off, they defy him, we've seen all sorts of vulgar gestures, you know, they, they have turned away from him. So when Dante says to be mean to him was a generous reward, is to show he's actually working in accord with God. He's simply adding a punishment. Now, it may be a little bit more, I mean, you know, the fact that he gives a vow, I mean, we may have to nuance those some, I don't know, but it seems to me if we look at Dante, we see sort of what, what Fred was saying, that he is a sinner, but he's learning to temper, to curb himself, and he's, I think, slowly coming into accord with God. He's not so susceptible to doing emotionally letting him feel things that he shouldn't, if I can put it that way.
let me let me look at Satan for a few minutes, and then we'll turn to the Purgatorio. Unless anybody has a question here or comment <clears throat> before we look at Satan. What happened to the black boy, James, that you said it was in and, you know, was ended, ended with man is white, and you said we had an African-American in the class? You didn't say his response or how you dealt with him? Oh, no, no, no. <clears throat> Sorry, Linda. I was just... That was just a way of trying to illustrate what Thomas means by mode. Mode, what, you may, not, you may have come in just, I was explaining the features of the Trinity everywhere in life. The, the, the most obvious is the, the fact that we have being and we know and love that God is I am, we are, each one of us is, each one of us knows, each one of us loves. That that's an exact description of the Trinity. God is I am. He, has, he is being itself. He knows. In knowing himself, he produces the Son. In the love between them, the, the action of love, the Holy Spirit. I was just saying, we're all white, and I was looking for a... And James was here one day, and he's black. And, you know, that's our mode. Each one of us has a mode, a material disposition. Each one of us has um, a power for doing things. We do something. And each one of us moves towards an end. That's true of everything in creation. So it was a way of just illustrating that there's this Trinitarian aspect to everything. Yeah, I got that. Everything, everything shows it. We don't see it anymore, but it's there. Were you asking about James Crystal? Well, no, if he was in the I thought it was a quote from Thomas. Oh, okay. The, the Trinity, but... Um, yeah, I had that man is white in the order. I thought you were quoting St. Thomas. I was. Thomas's way of describing mode, form, and order was to say, these three, insofar as a thing is good, and in creation, it has these three properties, mode, form, order. And his, Thomas's example was, it has mode, form, and order as a man is white, virtuous, and learned. Those things line up. White is the mode. Form is the virtue, and order is the learned. Okay, let's take on Satan. You may disagree with me, and if you do, please feel free. <coughs> my, my claim, my contention is that the Ugolino is the most, is one of the most horrible, one of the most dramatic, <coughs> in terms of emotional <coughs> arousing, you know, creating emotional responses to it because we're watching a man. We're watching children offer themselves to their father, their, their uncle, and then we see him eating them. And the, the, the picture we're left with is Ugolino munching on Ruggiero's head. That's, there, there it is again, a parody of love. We, we keep seeing these, Francisco and Fadalina, we see these pairs but they serve as punishments for each other. It's, it's a sign of God's economy in the scheme of things. So the last image is, before Satan is of Ugolino eating Rogerio eternally. It's a horrible image of the kids in the tower dying one by one and then Ugolino eating them. When we get to Satan, it, Dante passes it by. He just describes this ridiculous figure, wings beating, setting up air, and 
and munching on these three figures. And then they climb Satan and come out on the shores of purgatory. So if you agree, you, if you disagree, disagree. But my contention is that the most dramatic scene of the Inferno is the Ugolino one, and the Satan one is anticlimactic. Why would Dante do that? Dante's masterful. He does nothing without a purpose. Everything he does speaks. So why would he give that Ugolino scene such dramatic power um, and the Satan scene with something less? If you agree, if you, if you don't, if you disagree, say so. It's a real contrast with Milton's Satan. Wait on that, because I want to go there. And, and I guess I think he did it on purpose because I, I think the, the message is that once you face sin head on and realize what it is and and begin to do something about it, Satan loses his power over you. And I think I think he's it's kinda of like the tempo, if you will. Like you're at the height of a and I'm I'm no musician, but you're at the, the height of the tempo when you when you run off the Ugolo scene. Ugolino. And you're like, man, I, Satan's got to be bad, right? And then you get there and, it, wow, you know, what happened? And I, I really think it's intentional to bring you to that thought that once you've kind of come, and we saw it in Until You Have Faces, it's kind of like once you, once you face it head on, and it's like everything in life, once you face it head on and are ready to deal <clears throat> It's like the, the, the heroic thing in uh, the Iliad and, 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 and the Achilles Odyssey. and death. It's like once you say, I'm not afraid of it anymore, it, it no longer has any power over you. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would I, exactly, I, I would have said it's Dante's way of showing that it, it's just saying the same thing that Fred said. I like the way you put it, Fred. It's Dante's way of showing that, as humans, we are responsible for our choices. We can't blame Satan. And it's his way. By the way, make a, Satan's been defeated. Christ has already harrowed hell. The, Satan, we see, is impotent. It's Dante's way of saying, you're responsible. You know, we, you have to take responsibility because, because he believes so deeply in free will, which the modern world doesn't. So I, it's just we'll see it in a minute when we start the Purgatorio because he's going to make it clear again in another way. But he and Shakespeare are the consummate poets of free will, of looking at man's choices and showing the tragic implications of it in the comic. And remember, for tragedy, tragedy doesn't mean for Shakespeare and Dante what it does to what moderns have done with it. The tragic hero, according to Aristotle, has a moment of recognition and he turns. So tragedy just doesn't mean gloom. It, it means in tragedy the action, the action moves from a, a huge foolish mistake, a, a wrong, and the hero recovering an equilibrium. It, re, reason is restored, he sees. And what he sees is his wrong. Oedipus blinds himself. So tragedy isn't about doom, or it's not a negative. It, 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 if, it, if there's any meaning to tragedy, according to the classic, it affirms the central role of reason over against the emotions. So we can see, and because we can see, we can change what we do. 
So, and Dante as a Catholic believed the same thing, and I think his treatment at the end of the Inferno just shows that. I thought the way you put it, Fred, was really good. Um, and I don't know if you were searching, but remember, Achilles, this is so classical, I mean, the classical world understood this. When Achilles accepts death, once you, I mean, in the, in the Homeric world, the issue is not knowing yourself, it's in Homer there, it's once you accept death, and, and he does because he knows he's going to die, he goes back to the battle, what's he got to be afraid of? And once he goes back to the war, nobody can stop him. What, I mean, to put it, you, know, you, you said once you face the, however you put it, but once you face death, once you face sin and say no more, I mean, if you give your will completely to it, you may still trip. But there's a difference between that and going into the world tentatively, you know. And the, the part of the greatness of the Iliad, I think, is that Homer's showing, he knew that once a man accepted death, it's like a man saying an alcoholic, once you, what are you afraid of after that? I mean, if you mean it, if you really mean it, it means the struggle to recover begins. You may trip and trip, and but at least you're moving towards an end in which you can fulfill yourself. Whereas somebody who doesn't, person's, it's like proof rock, person's lost. So that's the end of the inferno. Last question, what do we, what do we make of the difference between Dante's treatment of Satan and Milton's? We've been waiting for this. Now you've all read Paradise Lost. This is wonderful. No, truly, you guys have read both now. Pretty I mean, you can see things now that you I think you couldn't have seen before. What do you make of the Dante's treatment of Satan comparison with Milton's? Debbie, what do you? Anybody? I something about modeling. I think. Hmm. I don't know what I'm still all the way going to get. No. <laughs> Okay, I think Dante um, shows Satan as horrible and evil and awful, and Milton's Satan was sort of a, uh, he wasn't awful, he was just sort of an instigator and a imp. Imp? <laughs> imp. <laughs> Powerful imp. Yes, but he wasn't shown in this horrible, horrible manner that, that Dante did. Hmm. So are you saying Milton was more compassionate, soft? He, he I don't know, he was almost the hero. Satan. Satan, Satan. Yeah. In, in Milton, but here he's horrible and awful. And I emerged from Paradise Lost with a symbol of Satan is still a force to be reckoned with, even though God had dispatched him. Hmm. Where why why say that for why? Well, because I mean, even 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 after being defeated, you know, he was still conniving and trying to have a negative impact on the world. And you left that. But I, you mean by let, let after me the fall? That. Yeah, after, after the fall. yeah. And it left me with. You know, this this still is feeling that, you know, I you you, you got to be careful with this guy because he's gonna 
creep up on you when you least expect it and bring you down kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Where, again, you know, again, when, when, when you see it in Dante, you get this feeling, you know, he's not this thing that can't be beaten. It's, it's, it's up to you to decide. And to me, that was, that was a real distinction, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it may, may be why the Dante version kind of hit me as hard as it did, because it was such, a, such a, a difference, a distinction. Between. What do you mean as hard as it did? Can you well, flesh it out? Well, when I, when I left Milton, I just felt like, okay, Satan's not done with me yet, you know? And when I left, when I left Dante, you know, I said, you know, I can, I can deal with this. I can do that, yeah. Wow. If that yeah. makes any sense. No, it does. Absolutely. Good, just a good way to put it, yeah. Um, re remember, just to try to be fair to both poets, I mean, I think what you've described is, goes right to the heart of both of them. Remember in, in Milton, in Paradise Lost, Milton presents Satan as this heroic, epic figure. He's on a quest. And I remember disagreeing with some of the, I mean, because I think the tendency in the part of parishioners was um, to sort of identify with him. Because there are a number of passages, I remember raising, because this is a troubling, that's a tr Paradise Lost is a troubling word for me. There are a number of passages in which what Satan says is meant to evoke our compassion. He has a moment where he c contemplates going back. How, that can't be, it just cannot be. Um, if he can, because remember, God said, the devil, this is the father in heaven, in, in Milton, they fell, they're eternally damned. Well, so, either Satan's wrong or God's wrong. Because if Satan can turn, God should have mercy. But he can't. So there are these passages where Milton played, and to, to, to try to give this the best footing that I can, I think it's Milton's way, because I think he partly identifies with the heroism that Satan has this quest, that there's something noble. And it's his way of trying to catch up a reader to identify with them because of their own evil. Because where is this going to go? Satan's going to get dashed. I and mean, at the very end, all the devils, you remember, are turned into toads. So we know that all of this is an illusion. It's all this grandiose, bloated, you know, overstating talking kind of thing. This heroic posturing on Satan's part. But when you're reading it, you're so caught up with the language that when he is thinking about turning or how unjust he was to God, it's as if we have moments where we're invited to sympathize with him because there's something almost human-like in him. So the, it's much easier for us to identify with Satan even if finally he's reduced to a toad. It made ridiculous. Whereas, I mean, I think Fred's right, whereas when we encounter Satan in hell, Christ is already defeated and it's over. We know that demons are in the world. Dante's really clear on this. Alberigio's got a, de a, a demon in him. So we know that evil's at loose in the world, and the place to be most wary is priests and popes. Um, Dante's so good. He's so good. Be wary of priests and popes. We know that evil is a, is a foot in the world, but we, but we know Satan's been defeated. So Dante's saying, it, it, you know, it's, we have a choice. Um, and it's important to make that choice and begin to turn. So part of what's going on in this voyage is Dante is learning to turn. There's a member, he went up the mountain, couldn't do it, he had to come back. 
He's learning to see, and now he's arrived at a point where he can begin to climb the mountain. Turn is, turn is being affected right here. He's going up purgatory. So now he's going to see what to, what to do with these sins. Can we leave it here? Are we okay? <coughs> Any questions? Okay. No questions about the inferno? Everybody ought to be able to sleep well tonight. Out of hell. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, uh, when Virgil and Dante are finding their path out of hell into purgatory, right. Virgil misses the opening. What, on the, on so the shores of purgatory? No. As he's climbing down Satan, uh-huh. uh, read the passage. Where, where are you? Can you find it? There was a hidden road. Um, My guy and I entered that hidden road to make our way back up the. We never thought of resting to. Yeah, so he had gone too far and had to, Virgil had to come back up to find the hidden road. I was just wondering why, I don't remember what happened. I don't remember that. It's a pretty direct climb. Below somewhere there's a space as far from Beelzebub as to the limit of his tomb, a little stream, all of a rock. My guide and I entered that hidden road to make our way back up. We climbed, he first, I behind, until through a small round opening ahead of us, I saw the lovely things the heavens hold. We came to see, we came out to see once more the stars. Let me go on. If you can, let's find it in next week or when we finish. Bring me back to it. it I, his climb is pretty direct. The, what I thought you were referring to when they go up purgatory, Virgil's going to have a moment when he can't find the opening to purgatory, and he's going to he's going to be downcast because once again, what we're seeing is Virgil, reason, needs help. So there will be that moment in just a few cantos, but I don't recall anything here. Here, let me go here. Um, a couple of things about purgatory, very, very quickly. I'm going to come back to this next week because it's really me. I want to go back to Plato's Cave, even though we've looked at it numerous times. Um, everybody in hell is a sinner. Everybody is a sinner. Virgil belongs to hell. Remember when the journey is over, he's going to return. To me, it, I think that's one of the hardest things to grapple with in the whole of the Divine Comedy. Because there's so much good... This is, think, talking about pity, think about the strength. God, I can't. This is Allegorically, we don't know where Virgil is. My hope is he's with God, that he's not in hell. Think of how tough-minded Dante had to be to have had Virgil as his guide 
and for Virgil to go back to hell when Virgil was the means of getting him to um, the earthly paradise. That he has to see him go back. How tough-minded is that? It's his way of showing that the very best of our human nature, I can't say this strongly enough, the very best of our human nature is not enough to get us to heaven. Without God's help, we can't. Virgil was adequate to get us back to the completion of the natural order. But from there, Dante needed divine help. For that, he needed Beatrice. That's why Beatrice comes there. So, when they come up on the shores of purgatory, a number of things need to be kept in mind. The first is, when they emerge from hell on the shores of purgatory, it's Easter morning. So, allegorically, what we're meant to see here is that Dante has completed the first stage of his journey. Remember, he had to go down into hell before he could climb the mountain. Now he can. All the people in hell are in sin. They want to be there. They've chosen it. We've seen that again and again. All the people in purgatory are in sin. No question. But the difference is the people in purgatory want to be with God, and they're repenting. So justice is real in both realms. God's law can't be played with. People can't twist God's law to make it what they want. The difference is in purgatory, people are, are attempting to fulfill God's law, to hold themselves, to not sin, and correct themselves. And that's an act of mercy. And we're going to see what we saw in the, in the uh, inferno. When Dante goes from the shores of purgatory into St. Peter's Gate, He's unconscious, asleep, the way he was in the inferno. So in the same way that our first motions into sin are unconscious, we don't ever see them, the first motions towards penance are never our own. They come as an act of grace. Dante has that dream, remember, when, he, when he's taken up on the eagle's wings? When he's taken up. That, that's an expression of, uh, of an action of grace. By the way, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. Remember in hell, each of the major levels was divided by a river. And there's a, um, and so each one of them marks a boundary. This is so important, these boundaries. Dante moves from anti-purgatory, pre-purgatory, into purgatory proper, where souls actually undergo penance, and undergo a conversion, they're changing. There's a boundary. That boundary is an image between the natural man and the supernatural man. It's like Achilles' return of the war. I'm really sure that image of a boundary, think about that. It's like on the other side of that boundary is another world. It's there. We don't see it. Every one of those boundaries marks a passage into another dimension, another order. So when they emerge on the shores of purgatory, allegorically, it signals Easter Sunday morning, the soul has turned. It's enacting the, the, the Catholic Mass, that everything that takes place um, is a movement with the help of Christ back to God. Let me try to put that more strongly in a couple of ways. Um, Remember when we looked at the two cities in St. Augustine, the city of man, the city of God? Those are the two 
principal cities. He said, there's this peregrine, peregrine, this wandering, this journey, journeying city. That was St. Augustine's image of the church. The church is in motion towards God. Purgatory is an image of the church. It's people helping each other return to God. And let me put that even a little bit more strongly to go back to Satan for a second. Why are, forget to add, why are all the images that end the inferno dealing with feasting, food imagery? Ugolino feasting on Rogerio, Satan feasting on Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. Alberigio inviting people over for dinner and killing them. Adam bloated. Why all these feasting images? Consumption. The sin, or remember the children saying, eat me, Father, and live. And then um, Ugolino eating them and eternally eating. Why all these eating images? Yeah. If this is the opposite, if hell, if evil, which we're not supposed to love, if evil is the rejection of God, Christ, and food is the basis of living, we need food to live, and Christ distinguishes himself from all other food in being the eternal bread, and Christ is life-giving, he offers life to those by sacrificing himself, what would the opposite be? People using each other to feed themselves. It's an image of the way we've been seeing this forever in the literature, humans using others for themselves. Feeding off all the wrong things. Hmm? Feeding off all the wrong things. Wrong thing, yeah. So, is that clear? That's clear, yeah. It, it, it's so appropriate. <clears throat> if, if hell is the opposite, that's, and Christ is at the center of heaven, remember, he, he's the center because he's the ones of restoring life, offering salvation to man, and that's exactly what we'd expect. When Dante and Virgil emerge on the shores, they're entering the church. It's Easter Sunday. It's, it's the day when the church celebrates a risen life. They're rising from the dead. They've just come out of hell. It's this darkness. So we're leaving this, this place of the Walpurgis night, this witch's this Sabbath, the inversion to, of the Eucharist, where people feed on each other, use each other, into a community in which people offer each other help as they try to get back to the Father. Um, now just a couple of things and we'll stop. Um, a couple of important things. There's three sections to the purgatorium. There's anti-purgatory, that stage in which people are kept because they put off penance, so they have to wait an appropriate time. There's purgatory itself, where people are actually undergoing penance. They're, they're attempting to purify themselves. And all, and all of this is with God's help. And there's Eden. So there's anti-purgatory, purgatory, purgatory, and Eden. Purgatory itself is divided into three. I think we went, didn't I go through this? Purgatory itself is divided into three. Um, 
There's lower purgatory, middle purgatory, and upper purgatory. Remember, and remember the, whole, the whole point of this is to go home. So one of the major themes that we've had since Homer was the major theme of the Odyssey, the nostos, the homecoming. Remember, Odysseus had to go home. Nostos, the return home, from which we get nostalgia going back. This is Dante now. He's gone down, and now he's actively moving towards his home, to return home to God. What he meets on Lower Hell are the, are the levels um, purifying the love of evil. You know, this needs a, a second. Remember, the Protestant believes that man has no free will, that the effects of the fall were complete, that man's depraved in essence, in essence. <clears throat> Think about how much that colors the modern Catholic, that we're depraved, the dark view of that. Um, <clears throat> we believe God made nothing evil. The fall was not complete. We're wounded. We suffer from concupiscence. And I'm trusting everybody knows that concupiscence is so devastating that sometimes we feel helpless against our sins. As much as we want to try to correct them, we still have to keep going back to confession. We, we need to confess to keep doing that. Dante doesn't believe in depravity. It's Catholic. He believes that we're wounded, um, that man's responsible for himself, but by himself he can't get back to God. He needs help. What we're learning here in the bottom of hell is the disordered loves of loving evil on another. So pride um, is loving oneself more than another and wanting to use somebody to get ahead of them. Remember, remember these are the driving forces of the commercial republic. People want to get ahead. They also want to make more money. So pride is the love of evil in the sense that you, you see another person as an object, something to overcome, to get ahead yourself. Envy is um, loving the harm to come to another because somebody has something you don't. Somebody has a job you don't. You, you, you're glad when he loses it because then you can get the job. Your sister's got a dress, it's a dress you always wanted. Uh, you're not sorry when she spills something on it and ruins it. <laughs> something inside you smiles. Um, anger is the love of harm to come to another. Somebody's done you injury, you're glad when they suffer themselves. So all of the lower sins are the more spiritual sins. They're the love of evil for another. We, want, we wish something, we want evil to come to another person. And remember, pride is at the root of them. So just like Satan is at the center of everything in hell, pride is at the center here. Every one of these sins assumes a pride. Their pride is buried in every one of them, in some, some way, some small way. The middle of purgatory is sloth. Everything from this level up is good. Their, their love of good. This is love of evil. Everything from here up is love of good, the love of something good. Sloth is inadequate love. We don't love something enough. Um, it's boredom or boredom or apathy or indifference. We don't love enough to move. Every one of the upper sins are love of some good that's excessive. Avarice, we love things too much. Gluttony, we love food or drink too much. Lust, we love sex too much. 
So when Dante begins his penance, um, he's what he's doing as what he did with the animals in Inferno. He's learning to recognize the sins and seeing the means of correcting them, because every one of these, every one of these has an answering virtue, a virtue that's peculiar to that sin. If pride's our sin, we have to learn to humble ourselves. Every one of the sins will have a response. And interestingly, as we go up, Dante's going to experience um, what he knew and what, what we know as goads and checks. Remember that, okay? Goads and checks. Just like the contrapassos. The goads and checks. Goads will be images of the virtue opposite the sin. So in Dante's at the level of pride, he will see images of the pride itself. Um, that's a check. It's, it's meant to keep Dante from doing that and all the other people. The goads are instances of the virtue opposite. It's meant to goad a person on, to encourage a person. It's interesting because in that sense, the goads and checks are, um, have their root in reality, right? We go through the world with each other saying, that person shouldn't do that, I don't like that. We should say, I don't want to do that. If we see somebody doing wrong, we should be saying to ourselves, I don't want to do that. If we see somebody virtuous doing something well, we say, that's what I do want to do. But that means having the humility to acknowledge that, to learn from each other. So the goads and the checks are helps at every level. Okay? The checks are an image of the sin itself, the goads are images of the virtue that's opposite. As Dante goes up, he's learning to see the sins and he's learning to answer them with acts. That's what penance is doing good deeds to answer our sins. And here's the fundamental thing I wanted to, and I'll end with it here. Hell is a place of justice. People get exactly what they deserve. This is where I'm going to pick up next week, and I'm going to go to Plato's Cave again, because we haven't looked at it in a while. Purgatory is justice um, together with mercy. Because one of the differences between the ancient world and the Christian world is the highest virtue of the ancient world was justice. We know that from Plato. The most important thing for us is to order our own souls to be just to another. They did not understand Christian charity. They could not. They didn't know Christ. As close as they got to it, they, they couldn't see a God dying on a cross. What Christ did in going to a cross is offer us a love we did not deserve. So in heaven or hell, people are getting exactly what they deserve. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. In purgatory, people are, have opened themselves to a love they don't deserve. And what's going on in purgatory is that people are trying to do the same thing with each other. They're trying to help um, by offering a love that's not deserved. But remember, it's predicated on justice. Justice is not done away with here. That's the great harm. So often people often compassion, a compassion that does away with justice. Or they hold people to a justice without any compassion or mercy. What we're seeing in purgatory is both of those things defining what people do. Again, or, learning to order the soul, um, to, to, to come into a tune with God's own law, his own mercy.
let me stop there. We'll pick up. We'll start. We'll look at. Um, those are just some basic principles. Um, next week we'll pick up and we'll look at actual characters and actual level. Here, by the way, before you go on, one last thing. When you start the purgatory, if you haven't started, when you when you read the the anti-purgatory, Dante set up in stages. There's several of them, several stages. Watch what happens because in those opening stages, he's doing what he did with Satan in hell. People are close or far away from starting purgatory depending on how responsible they were for what they did. If they didn't take responsibility for what they did, they're farther away. They have a longer wait. So once again, Dante's showing um, how important human freedom is that we can never be free until we take responsibility for our own actions. So that principle of free will and human freedom and human responsibility is set out really clearly in the beginning. We'll see that when we pick up because that'll be the that'll be the first stages of uh, anti-purgatory. And one last question: the, the, the cleansing that takes place in the in the uh, anti-purgatory at the washing of the sea. Yeah. The, 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 With the know, reed, they, they, you know, they they pick up the dew off the the reeds. And right. They, they Virgil washes Dante's face. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's that a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. To, to get ready to, to begin the climb? It, I mean, I, uh, to me, it's, it's a couple of things. Or am I overplaying that? No, 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 no. I think it is. But, but I, yes, it, I think we're meant to call that. It's an illusion. It's not an actual baptism, but it's an illusion. It's also Dante's way of saying, which is, for me, the, the more important thing. It goes back to what you said about however you put it, Fred, to facing up to it, you know, you, to make that choice. Before you start purgatory, you have to put the whining away. You clean your face, you wash off all the muck from hell. That's the first gesture you make to saying, I mean, in the way you put it, you're facing it and saying, no more crying, no more tears, no more sin. You pick yourself up and... So the first gesture, you all know what Fred's talking about when Dante, before he can start, before they go up to the anti-purgatory levels, they have to go to the water and they take the reeds um, and wash off Dante's face. He has to clean away the sin. It's a way of saying, clean up, pick yourself up, get on. Some of us are going to need more reeds than others. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Even to, even to say that means you're good. Because, because, because what that first gesture... I mean, you have, you have to have humility to say that. The, the importance of that gesture is that humility is the requirement for going up. You, you, you have to clean yourself up and so. You're, you're, you're in a good place. You don't know what it cost me to say that to you. There's a lot, of, lot going on under the surface. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's oh. all the time. Oh, you know, yeah. the deck looks so calm on the surface, but it's kind of a little crazy. <laughs>